you can always check your bulletin. You can always go online. You can always reach out and say, hey, what are you up to? What are you doing? Uh, I'd like to be a part of it. I'd like to get involved. So as we transition, I want to read from God's word as Pastor Drew's going to come and, and share um, with us. You know, if we could, as, as I read this, also be praying for Pastor Drew. He's, you know, stayed up till 2 or 3 in the morning, and uh, he's faithful in uh, his study and his preparation, but he stayed up uh, because he's not feeling well. So we're just going to be praying for him because we need strength in this moment. We're going to be reading from Exodus chapter 19. It's on page 57 in your red pew Bible, if you want to open up there. Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 through 6. On the third new moon, after the Israelites had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They had journeyed from Rephidim, entered into the wilderness of Sinai, and camped in the wilderness. Israel camped there in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the Israelites, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore... If you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom, a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the Israelites. This is the word of the Lord. Mike, thank you so much. And uh, show of hands, how many of you received a, an unexpected gift this Christmas season? Anybody? Yes, I got a, a cough that just uh, um, was also given apparently to my wife. Um, so we both got bronchitis, and uh, my two boys have double ear infections, and uh, my oldest has a two pink eye infection. So it's like this amazing gift of a, you know. We were in Texas. Uh, we were sick the entire time away. And uh, I'm on meds, so I, uh, I'm doing well. But... Yeah, at night, I don't know if you've had that before where you just, uh, whatever you do, you can't do anything other than cough, and it finally stopped at 3 a.m., and I've got such a great team who are like, you know, let us know, because we've got sermons in the queue, we can preach for you, you know, on the fly, let us know, and while that's amazing, uh, I just, I so feel like we, we need to hear this message today. And so here I am, and there's, I don't have a lot of power. I feel like I ran a marathon this morning, uh, but all the power is in God's Word. So let's just rely on that. Amen? Okay. So Mike, I'm so glad you read that for us because this is so, so amazing for us to come back to Exodus because we spent eight weeks in Exodus in the fall, and if you were with us in the fall, it was a journey from oppression to liberation, from being enslaved in Egypt to being set free and delivered and uh, through the Red Sea and the other side, we ended in this amazing experience of worship. And their story, the Israelite story, is our story because Jesus is the, the new Moses uh, who meets us in the midst of our enslavement, our oppression, and leads us out of enslavement to a place of liberation. And yet, many of us, uh, we think that when Charlton Heston you know, got up and said, let my people go. We think there's a period after the word go when there's not. 
In fact, we remember, many of us, the first half of the sentence, but there's a second half of the sentence in Scripture that's the reason why God set free not only the nation of Israel but also us. Do, do, do you remember what it says after let my people go? Say that real loud. Somebody had it over there. Just shout it out real loud. So that they may worship me in the wilderness, God says. You know, we live in a world where freedom and liberty are lifted so high up, let my people go, and yet we forget that freedom, if it's not used to worship God in obedience, if freedom and liberty is used for anything other than putting our heart, mind, or soul on a trajectory towards God, then it actually leads us back into enslavement. You see, you can use your freedom for a lot of things. We live in a world where we have freedom. And yet if we are free to do anything other than the life that God invites us into, in actual fact, we will end up actually worse than enslaved. We will think we're free, but in actual fact, we are just as enslaved as the nation of Israel was in bondage in Egypt. And we're going to find here today that there's this glorious intersection of God's love and God's law. And those two things are not mutually exclusive. Uh, we can't rip those things apart. We, we can tend to, as people, often uh, love the fact that God loves us and forget about God's law. Or we focus so much on the law, what we're supposed to do for God, that we forget God's love. In other words, some of us are all about a relationship with God, and we don't care about any of the rules. And we downplay the rules. And, uh, I don't know. It's about my relationship. And yet some of us are so focused on the rules and other people following the rules that we don't even cultivate a relationship. And this verse in the Hebrew Scriptures, in the Old Testament, is a, is a picture of the gospel that says that actually love and law come mingled together. And we're going to see that there is freedom that comes not just from deliverance from oppression of people and things, but there's actually freedom that comes in following God's law. There's freedom that comes in following God's command. There's actually freedom at living within the boundaries and constraints of the life that God invites us into. You've heard me say before that a fish thrives within the constraints of water. You rip the fish out of water saying, oh, it needs to be free up in the sky. It's not going to thrive very long. So let's take a look at this. And as we do, as a reminder, as we did in the fall, we have this great uh, resource from Scott the Painter. Scott Erickson online. He's traveling the U.S. right now on, a, on an art experience tour. And he's providing all the art for us every single week. And this postcard is a gift to you. And I hope that you would use this to, to have conversations with people in your life, maybe a friend, a family member, uh, a roommate, a neighbor, a co-worker, and you'll notice on the back, whether you want to take notes or use it as an opportunity to mail it to somebody, there's some questions that flow out of the sermon today to be used as a prompt. And my hope is that you would have at least one Christ-centered conversation with somebody in your life this week using this postcard as a prompt. So maybe leave that out. Leave that out with the Bible that you have. And uh, many of you, you hear me say every week, and if you're new, hear it for the first time, we want you to have a Bible in your life. 
And so this red book in the pews is our pew Bible. It's our gift to you. Take it with you. We can refill it as quickly as you take it. And I hope that you would take a pencil and mark it up and take notes. Uh, but before I get into the three major points about why God's law is so exquisitely loving, I want to point something out to you. So open those Bibles back up and take a look. There's something very fascinating here in verse 3 of Exodus 19, and it says this. Then Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the Israelites, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you. Some translations say how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Let's pause right there. The first thing that God wants the nation of Israel to know is this. You are not here because of anything that you've done. You are not here because of your good works, your good deeds, but because I, God, carried you. Now, they just experienced packing up their belongings. They just experienced marching across the wilderness. They just experienced going through the Red Sea. They just experienced uh, a manna. Uh, they just experienced all these things. Like, they've worked hard. They've done stuff. And God says, all of that actually was me carrying you. God is saying to them, and God is saying to us, you need to know that it is God that rescues you and not you that rescues yourself. It's God that does the work to bring you to God. It's God that initiates. It's God that, that, that pursues. It is God that carries. It is God that accepts. In the midst of their brokenness, in the midst of their slavery, it was God that heard their cry and pursued them, and God does the same for us. And you've got to know that on one hand, God's love for you is unconditional. It does not depend on what you can do for God in any sort of way. However, take a look at what it says in verse 5. Now, therefore, if. Uh, in your Bible, or if your Bible is that now that new red uh, Bible that you're now going to take, I want you to circle the word if. I want you to underline the word if. I want you to put a little star next to the word if. And I want you to see the conditional nature of God's relationship with us. You see, many of us like the first part, the unconditional love. We loved hearing that God carries us, that God pursues us, that God loves us. There's nothing that we could ever do to earn God's love or God's favor, that it's actually God who initiates all the rescue and God that brings us to God's self. We love that part. But now God says, if and only if you obey my voice and keep my covenant... In other words, I'm going to put some conditions now on you. And if and only if you do these things, then you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine. But you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. So right here, God is saying that I unconditionally love you and I carried you. But you've got to know that there is a condition that now is your responsibility. Now this is the work that you have to do. Now out of the overflow of being rescued, out of the overflow of being loved, out of the overflow of being accepted, now 
I want you to live in a certain way that makes my voice, God's voice, the most important voice in your life. And if you obey my voice, and if you live the way that I'm commanding you to live, three things are going to happen. And if you're taking notes on paper or in your mind, the three things are this, that you're going to experience what it means to be God's treasured possession. Two, that you'll experience what it means to be a kingdom of priests. And three, you'll experience what it means to be a holy nation. And in actual fact, God is saying, I have set you free so that you may now worship me in the wilderness. You know, worship comes from the old English word worthship. Uh, what you give worth to, what you give weight to. You hear me so frequently say that the word glory in the Hebrew language, kabod, literally means heaviness, weightiness, significance. The person's opinion that you put the most weight in is the Lord of your life. And God says that if you put me, my voice, as the weightiest thing, the most significant thing, the, the gravitational pull through which all of your decisions, all of your relationships, all of your dreams circle around, then you're going to experience what it means to be my treasure possession, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. Now, let me just pause there and take a back step up. And, you know, those aren't Christmas trees over there. If you're here with us on the Christmas season, you, you might say, wow, that looks like the Christmas trees that were wrapped in, like, Christmas paper. No, that's Mount Sinai, okay? <laughs> Repurposing, right? And as you see that mountain, right, uh, it's important to know that in the ancient world, the first cities sprang up in Mesopotamia. And a city was unique in the sense that people were able to uh, bring their resources together. And what they did is they would build these things, basically human-made mountains called ziggurats. Let me hear you say ziggurat. You can Wikipedia it, tell you everything you need to know. The first known one was in uh, three, uh, uh, third century B.C. And basically it was a human-made mountain in the midst of a city where people would come and they would ascend to the top and they would praise their gods and offer their sacrifices and they believed that because of their work to get to the top of this mount, the top of this hill, the top of the ziggurat, then their sacrifices would be heard because they were closer to the gods. So the worldview back then in ancient cultures was that if you did your work, then you would be blessed by the gods. If you did your work, then you would be accepted by the gods. Uh, people would come to the city, that they would then come to the city to make a name for themselves, that they would use other people to make a name for themselves and get themselves ahead. And what's so fascinating about this is that the Tower of Babel, historians tell us, was actually built on a ziggurat. And it was this ancient worldview that if you could just somehow do work and do enough, if you could somehow master your New Year's resolutions, if somehow you could master mindfulness, if somehow you could master uh, all these things, then you would have peace, then you would have joy, then you would be blessed. 
And what God does is he flips all of that on its head and says, no, I'm coming to you, and I'm going to carry you not to a human-made mountain. I'm going to carry you to a a God-made mountain, and I'm going to descend upon you. Where you're used to ascending to meet me, I'm going to descend upon it, and I'm going to show you my love in such a tangible way that it's my very heart. And so at the base of this God-made mountain, completely counterculturally, God says, if you obey my voice and, and do my commands, first and foremost, you will be, number one, a treasured possession of mine. Now, the, the Hebrew language here is such a unique, fascinating word. For treasured possession, it is a word that is only used for an absolute ruler, a king, a queen, a pharaoh, somebody who has so much power, who owns all the land, all the cattle, uh, all the buildings, even all the citizens. This was true back then in the ancient world. Who owns everything, but that word treasure possession was a special word that was used to designate that ruler's personal and private wealth. In other words, they couldn't have all the cattle and all the land in their bedchambers. And so they had their most prized possessions, the things that they would delight in, brought in so that they could see, that they could touch, that they could be around, that they could be intimate with. I remember as a kid, I was given this amazing baseball with a name on it. And the name was one of the greatest pitchers in the 80s, Oral Hershiser. And I was so thrilled to get this gift. I mean, it was just absolutely remarkable. And what did I do? It was one of my treasure possessions, and I kept it in my room. And it had my fingerprints all over it. Now, collectors would say, you ruined it. You ruined the price. I didn't care. It was my treasure possession. In fact, one of the first things I did when it was given to me is I took my thumb, and I literally wiped it across Oral Hershiser's name to see if it was really ink or if it was printed on. Oh, yeah, that's smeared. But it was so, I don't think there's any other Oral Horsheiser signed baseball that has that smear because my fingerprints were all over it. I saw it all the time. It was near me. I just thought it was so cool, like this Titan who won the World Series, you know, with Kirk. I mean, it's just absolutely amazing. You know, I still own that baseball, but I have no idea where it is. You know, the decades have gone by. I put it in a box. I've moved a couple times. Uh, I've got other treasure possessions in my life. Uh, most significantly my family, and, uh, you know, it's still mine, right? And yet it's no longer my treasured possession. You know, if that baseball had feelings and could think, it's not experiencing like it used to what it means to be a treasured possession. In the same way, God says, you are mine. Scripture says right here, the whole earth is mine. And if and when you obey my voice and you, you follow my commands, you actually experience what it's like to be God's, to be God's treasured possession. You actually get to experience what it's like to be delighted in by the king of the cosmos. You actually experience what it's like to be more valuable than 
than anything in all of creation, to be more beautiful than anything in all of creation. You see, when you follow these commands, when you, when you lean into a life of, of putting God first and, and longing for God's direction to be your, your guiding light, the experience of your life is drastically different. Now, again, this is completely countercultural back then because first you had to do in order to be blessed. You had to work in order to be a treasure possession. But he says, no, 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 I've already accepted you unconditionally. Now I simply want you to experience it. I want my fingerprints, as it were, God says, to be all over you, that people would look at you and, and would see me. But he goes on. And he says that if you obey my voice and listen to my commands, you're going to be a kingdom of priests. We're going to learn this in the next couple of weeks, in fact. But uh, the role of a priest is simply to be a mediator. The role of a priest is to help somebody in their relationship with God. And he doesn't say just to one person, Moses. He doesn't just say to the head honcho. He doesn't just say to the pastoral staff. He doesn't just say to the pastors. He doesn't just say to the elders. He says to the whole community, he says, you actually, you all, if you live in this way of life, you're a kingdom of priests. That the primary role in your life isn't for you to make a name for yourself. The primary reason why you exist is to glorify God, but also to draw others into a loving relationship with God. This absolute gift that God gives us of purpose, of significance, of meaning, of, of never being without work, of never being unemployed, of never not being chosen. He says, no, no, you, you... You are how I get things done in this world. You are how I get justice accomplished in this world. You are how I get mercy and forgiveness accomplished in this world. You see, there's a condition. God says, you're not going to be my mediator if you put other people first. You're not going to be very useful to me, God says, if you, if you don't even listen to my voice. You're not going to be very useful to accomplishing the most eternally purposeful and joyful things if you think that these little things are of eternal value. He says, I've already accepted you. I've already loved you. Now, if you do these things, be a kingdom of priests. We talk about it this way at this church, that we would follow Jesus, not just the staff, but all of us. We would follow Jesus every day and everywhere with everyone because you, you are the royal priesthood. And we see the staff's role is to equip the saints, you all are saints, for the work of the ministry. But then he goes on. He says, it is with absolute love that I want to set you free that if you obey my voice and listen to my commands, that, that you would be a holy nation. Now you hear all three of these things. He's not talking about just an individual. He's talking about a community of people. Because whenever he says you, it's the y'all. It's the y'alls, you know. It's, 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 it's the communal you. He's saying that you all are a treasure possession. And it's hard for us to wrap our mind around this in such a Western individualistic world. 
other parts of the world culturally get this a little bit more. But he says, no, no, I've set you free to be part of a community. Whereas a community, you are a community that is my treasured possession. And it's bigger than just the people you see right here. It's more than just the services here on a Sunday. It is the entire church around the entire globe throughout all of history. That is God's treasured possession. So whenever you meet a Christian from another church, bless them. We don't compete with other churches because we are all collectively a treasure possession. We are all collectively a kingdom of priests, and we all are collectively a holy nation. Now, the word holy simply means set apart, distinct. Uh, it does not mean superior, that you would lord it over other people. It means set apart, but it is a nation. It is a people. It is an alternate city in the city of Los Angeles. In the city of Los Angeles, where people come to make a name for themselves, we would be an alternate city within this city so that we would make the name of Jesus more renowned and more lifted up than any other name in this city, that it's all about him. And that as we listen to and as we follow the commands of, G of, of God in the Ten Commandments, which we'll get to in a number of weeks, we're going to discover how countercultural those commandments were. Do you realize that before that, in society, women had no rights. And for the first time, the Ten Commandments moved all people on equal ground. For the first time, daughters could inherit the wealth of their parents. That had never happened before. That for the first time, men and women were actually treated equally when there was a consequence for behavior that, that men weren't just given special passes. That for the first time to the Ten Commandments, power was used not just for people to elevate themselves, but power was used for the sake of the poor, for the sake of the oppressed, for the sake of the marginalized. For the first time to the Ten Commandments, we see that money is actually used to bless other people. And actually, if you were to prorate the amount that each individual in the nation of Israel was supposed to give, it averaged out to be, over the number of years, 22.3% annually given towards the flourishing of other people. 22.3%. No wonder why it says in Deuteronomy 15 that if you listen to God's word, there will be no poor people in the land. No one will experience homelessness. And yet here's the problem. This gift of love that God gives us in the law, which Psalm 1 says that the beginning of wisdom is when we delight in the law, that the beginning of freedom is following the law. There's this pattern throughout all of Scripture where God's people say, oh, yeah, yeah, I got it. Kind of like some of us say, oh, yeah, I got it. And then we walk out of the room, we walk out of the, the, the foothills of the mountain, and we forget. And we begin to put other things as the Lord of our life. Scripture calls it idolatry. No wonder why the first commandment is to put God above all other things. And so this pattern keeps happening throughout all the Hebrew scriptures where God's people can't obey the commands. And in actual fact, it says in Romans that no, no person has ever been able to do it. Nobody perfectly listens to the voice of God. Nobody perfectly obeys God's commandments. And so that leaves us absolutely stuck. And so what we often do 
is we just gravitate towards God's love and we kind of abolish the law in our minds or we just so focus so much on the law and we live in fear not knowing that God loves us. But when Jesus came in the flesh and on this Sunday, which is Epiphany Sunday in the Christian calendar, it is a reminder that not only has God come to us, but there is this holy revelation that Jesus was the only one who perfectly listened to the Father's voice, who perfectly obeyed the commands of God. He was fully human, yes, fully God, and yet he was obedient even to the point of death, death on a cross. And in a moment as we partake in the Lord's Supper, it is a reminder of the lengths that God went to to reveal to us that we will never measure up. And yet we can stop trying to measure up because on one hand, we've already been accepted, we've already been loved, we've been uh, set free while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, but in the other way, Jesus goes to the cross, he takes upon our broken record, he gives us his perfect record, and take a look at this, why don't you flip right now to Second Peter, or was it First Peter? I'm on a Z-pack, I'm gonna blame it on that. I don't think that messes with memory. I think it's 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 2, verse 4. It's on page 9, 984, thank you, in your pew Bible. Remember back in the day, the cities said, come to the human-made mountain. There you'll get closer to God. There you'll make a name for yourself. Jesus, the one who came and said, I haven't come to abolish the law, I've come to fulfill it. I'll say that again. Jesus says, I haven't come to abolish the law, I've come to fulfill it. Therefore, Peter says this, verse 4 of 1 Peter 2, come to him, Jesus. Come to him. In the beginning of this new year, come to him. In the beginning of this year, don't just come right to your New Year's resolutions. In this new year, don't come directly to your five-year goals. In this new year, don't come directly to thinking that you've got to do something in order to earn favor by other people or by God in order to get you peace. Scripture says, come to him. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus, a living stone though rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight, and like living stones, all y'all let yourselves be built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, sound familiar? To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Everything that you offer to God isn't acceptable because you offered it, because you worked for it, because it was a sacrifice for you, because it was hard for you, it is acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He takes our broken sacrifices, my broken preaching that I offer, and it's acceptable to God because of what Christ has already accomplished on the cross. And so some of you are like, oh, I guess he feels bad about this sermon. I'll send him an email. Save it. <laughs> I'm making a point here. What we give isn't enough. It'll never be enough, but it needs to be enough. And it is enough through Jesus Christ. 
It is enough through Jesus Christ. So on one hand, you are unconditionally loved. You will conditionally experience what it means to be God's treasure possession. You will conditionally experience what it means to be a kingdom of priests. You will conditionally experience what it means to be a holy nation because Jesus fulfilled the conditions. And so through faith and trust in him, you meet that condition. And now, what does Jesus say? He doesn't say just live however you want. He says, now I want you to follow me. I want you to obey my voice. I want you to listen to my commands. I want you to remain in my love by doing as I do. I'm going to teach you how to live. I'm going to teach you how to love. But now you can do so with the freedom knowing that you're already in, that you're already loved. It's like you want to get into a school. You'll never get in. Somebody gets you into the school. Now just go to class. Now just study. You're going to graduate. It's like you want to be part of an amazing team, right? Pick a team. There's some big games today, big games tomorrow night, big games this month, the next week, right? Huge, right? You'll never get part of the team unless you get invited on the team by somebody else. Now just show up and play. Experience the freedom of that. You know the word amateur, which I love? <laughs> the word amateur means you do it for the love of it. The root word is amour. My goal in 2019 is that I be an amateur pastor, an amateur preacher, an amateur leader. And I hope that we as a church will be a pretty amateur church. Not because we're like, you know, not into it. We're kind of hacks at it. We do it for the love of it, out of the overflow of God's love for us. I'm telling you, the greatest catalyst for human transformation, the greatest catalyst for human motivation is actually God's holy revelation that he reveals to you that I love you and now here's how I want you to live so you can experience that love. I'm done. Let's preach. Let's pray. <laughs> God, I've gone too long because we need to experience uh, this physical, tangible reminder of the links that you went to for us on the cross demonstrated through this amazing meal that we get to celebrate every Sunday night and once a month in the morning that we do so with other priests, the rest of this holy nation around the globe is your treasured possession. So God, I pray that you would in this moment remind us that all of this you've done for us and now you call us to live for you. May we not shrink back from that. May it embolden us, may it give us courage, may it inspire us, that you've let us be set free now to worship you. Jesus, we thank you for your love, and it's your name we pray, and we say together, amen.